Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and Audible Bleeding's Vascular Trauma Podcast Series with Dr. Todd Rasmussen. Today, in our final episode, we're going to discuss the endovascular management of acute vascular injury. Specifically, we're going to focus on thoracic uh, blunt aortic injury and endovascular treatment options for axillosubclavian injuries. Um, today, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Todd Rasmussen. He's a colonel in the United States Air Force and is a professor of surgery and an associate dean of research at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, is an attending vascular surgeon at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Rasmussen. Thanks very much, uh, Kevin, for, for um, the opportunity. And I, I look forward to a good discussion on, a, on a, I think, a really important topic. Thank you. Great. And uh, we also have Dr. Wayne Kazi. He's the Chief of Vascular Surgery at San Antonio Military Medical Center at a Level 1 Trauma Center in San Antonio, Texas. And he's an Associate Professor of Surgery at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. So uh, welcome, Dr. Kazi. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Well, let's just dive in. We're going to focus first on the blunt thoracic aortic injury and the endovascular management of that. So I think it's important to understand, you know, how this occurs and, and, and what patients this occurs in. So blunt thoracic aortic injury is rare, but it's very lethal. It's less than 1% of all blunt traumas, but it's the second leading cause of death in blunt trauma. Yes, Kevin. That's why whenever I'm called about a patient who has a blunt aortic injury, I really want to know what their other injuries are because these are usually very high velocity mechanism injuries. And there's a particular concern that they'll have an intracranial injury. Right. So, you know, when you're the trauma resident uh, taking pages, you know, the things you want to think about that'll clue you into, uh, you know, we need to make sure they don't have this is uh, high speed motor vehicle collisions, motorcycle crashes, vehicle versus pedestrians, and falls from heights are some of the most common causes of blunt thoracic aortic injury. Yeah, I think as most vascular surgeons have seen, it's pretty amazing now the types of injuries people can survive. I mean, I've seen people in cars who've fallen over overpass, fallen off of overpasses, people being hit by trains. The pre-hospital management and the vehicle safety features that exist now have really expanded what's survivable. Yeah, and um, quickly we're going to just kind of review some of the anatomy of where these injuries occur is um, so the, the aortic arch itself is, is relatively mobile, doesn't have a lot of tethering, but the descending thoracic aorta itself is actually kind of tethered. And so uh, it's, it's at that junction, just distal uh, to the subclavian artery um, is where these injuries generally occur. Most of them occur within about a half centimeter um, to two centimeters of the sub left subclavian artery. And so it's at that junction that uh, the, the aorta tears due to the deceleration. Um, so, Wayne, do you have any uh, particular thoughts on uh, diagnostic methods for these? Well, I think most trauma centers have a pretty good protocol, such as the level one trauma center we work at. Typically, the patients who come in with a really high velocity mechanism injury get a CT angiogram of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And oftentimes, if there's an extremity that's injured as well, that'll just be carried down through the uh, lower extremities as well or the upper extremities. Yeah, great. So yeah, CTA um, is critical in these patients um, to help uh, diagnose this. And so it's important to realize that uh, 
patients with these injuries, the, the majority of them, greater than 75%, never make it to the hospital. Um, and those that do make it to the hospital are likely going to be severely injured in, in multiple other ways. And it's not going to be an isolated injury. Um, so quickly, we're just going to go over the SVS grading system. There's a couple of ways to grade these. The current one in the SVS is, uh, has four grades. The first one is a grade one intimal tear. Grade two is an intramural hematoma. Grade three is a pseudoaneurysm. So there's an actual contour of the aorta is disrupted. And, uh, and then grade four is what they consider rupture. So those are the four SVS grading systems. And, um, Wayne, do you want to talk about a little bit how Dr. Starnes uh, kind of breaks it down? Yes, Kevin, that's the official grading system. I remember when Behind the Knife first started, uh, one of the first or second episodes was an interview with Dr. Ben Starnes. And I remember listening to his blunt thoracic aortic injury recommendations on the way to the hospital as I would consult on one of these blunt thoracic aortic injuries. And he really categorized these into three different categories based on his Harborview data. Uh, that was a minimal aortic injury, uh, which had a 10 millimeter or less intimal tear, uh, a moderate, which had a pseudoaneurysm, and then the maximal, which I think he summed up very well in saying that there was a unilateral hemothorax, active contrast extravasation, a periaortic hematoma greater than two centimeters, and maximal width. And those were the patients that needed to go to the operating room, basically uh, at the time of the consult. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So the the Dr. Starn slash Harborview uh, categorization is really just three categories, and they kind of depend on when you operate. So the minimal ones you don't operate on; those are just intimal tears. The moderate ones they need an operation, but not emergently. And the maximal ones need a, an emergent operation. And so I think that was part of his kind of reasoning for it. One of the things that struck me with that podcast on Behind the Knife was he mentioned that what's the point of having a grading system? that doesn't have a treatment with each different grade. And so as Kevin goes through these, you'll see that there's a little bit of overlap between the two grades. And, and the point of that previous podcast was if you're going to have three treatments, then you need to, which is imaging or surveillance, uh, delayed repair, and then urgent, emergent or urgent repair, then there needs to be three different grading scores. Right. Yeah, yeah. So. I think I think uh, Dr. Starnes and, and the, that uh, the grading system you mentioned, I, I always find it to be sort of the practical. Um, uh, it's very practical uh, for for us. Um, the the four category classification is is a little bit more technical and maybe a little less practical. But um, yeah, I agree. I think it's uh, that's true. You know, the other thing before we get too far into this, I do think it's useful for your listeners. Um, uh, Kevin, to there, there's a couple of classic, uh, um, you know, papers uh, on blunt aortic injury, and 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 they really speak to for those who are interested in vascular trauma, interested in this condition. I would I would encourage you to dig into the, just two or three papers. One of them is the original AAST paper, led by Dr. Dimitriotis and the team at LA County in the late 1990s. Um, on blunt aortic injury, which not surprisingly in the late 1990s, that AAST, what we refer to as a AAST-1 study, showed that nearly all uh, blunt aortic injuries were fixed with an open thoracotomy and, 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 and aortic clamping and sewing in a graft. Um, the AAST repeated the, that study about 10 years later, and in 2006 uh, or so, I think it was actually published in 2008, 
um, where they, uh, it's called the AAST2 study. It's in the journal, both of these were in the Journal of Trauma at the time. Now it's the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, again, led by Dr. Dimitriades. Um, and, and in that 10 year period, the management of blunt aortic injury had completely uh, evolved from open repair to endo repair. And we won't go into the details of those studies, but, um, you know, and then you go three or four years later, and now there's the SVS that's writing these guidelines. So what you've seen in those three papers, the AAST1 in 1998 or 9, AAST2 in 2008, both in the Journal of Trauma, and now the leading organization writing the guidelines is the SVS and not the AAST. What you see there is this evolution of, of the management of this uh, this, this injury pattern from open, you know, to nearly exclusively endo now. Yeah, that is a fascinating evolution. Um, and very interesting. I, I, I've heard of those papers, but I didn't realize the transition from the, the trauma journal to the vascular journal for the kind of guidelines on it. Um, and not surprisingly, and again, um, at the risk of you guys not inviting me back, I don't mean to monopolize the uh, conversation, but um, you know, the thing that's happened with that evolution is the mortality, the, the survival of, of operating on these, these injuries has improved. Rates of paraplegia have decreased. Blood utilization has decreased. You know, patients, ba patients have a better chance in 2020 than they did in 2000, you know, um, and it's largely because of the evolution to endo uh, technologies that we've, we've mentioned. Yeah, and I bet there's not a whole lot of other specific things in trauma that have had that big of a change or improvement in outcomes in, in that amount of time. So it's pretty, it's actually a pretty special kind of uh, pathology and improvement there. Yes, sir. I, I'd encourage one of your listeners to write that up. It'd be a great review, uh, you know, two decade review, uh, two and a half decade review of, of just the broad strokes, how that practice has changed and how paraplegia rates are down, mortality rates it's still a highly lethal injury, but if patients make it to the uh, to the hospital, as you were referring to, um, modern grading, modern management techniques give them a much better chance. Absolutely, and I and I'll include all those papers in the show notes, so you can just go uh, click the links in the show notes here. Um, we're gonna get back into the kind of management of this. Um, there's some things that all of these patients are going to need, whether they're going to get surgery or not. Um, you really want to focus on anti-impulse therapy. And generally, it's going to be with a beta blockade and a short-acting beta blocker is the best. Um, so that's going to be uh, Esmolol is generally the, the, be the beta blocker of choice. And of course, you have to talk with your neurosurgery colleagues. Um, and we're going to discuss a little bit of this more lately. But um, you know, generally, you want the blood pressure less than 120 systolic. Um, is kind of, there's no guidelines on that, but it's just sort of consensus of, of surgeons. But you know, obviously, it depends on their head injury and other what other issues they have going on. Um, and generally, uh, as far as you know, managing the small tears, the less than 10 millimeter ones, uh, the guidelines recommend a CTA within 30 days. If you have a larger flap greater than 10 millimeters, this is something you're going to want to image sooner, uh, generally within seven days. And as Dr. Kazi pointed out the other day, is that many of these patients are getting rescanned for lots of different reasons, whether it's their blunt organ, in, uh, solid organ injuries, and other things, and really kind of try and work it into one of those to kind of fit the imaging um, to help them out. And then um, if it's an, and we're going to talk a little more about this in detail, but if there is an external aortic contour abnormality, generally you're going to repair that within less than one week. 
And then, of course, if the patient is hypotensive and has a hematoma um, concerning for a rupture, this should be repaired urgently. One of the things that comes up often, I find, is that patients who, ha who need to have their blood pressure elevated for one reason or another, such as a traumatic brain injury, and if you go back on the behind the knife conversation um, a couple of years ago, this was really brought to life as if they need to ramp up the blood pressure to treat intracranial pathology, oftentimes that's going to require uh, a very urgent repair um, so that that blood pressure can be brought up because you will not be able to do that anti-impulse therapy. And so, Dr. Kazi, are you saying on the... If there is a grade one injury um, per the, say, either either guidelines, the STARNs or the SVS guidelines, uh, that you would, this if and they needed a high blood pressure for their brain, you'd potentially uh, repair it with a T-VAR, uh, even though it, there is no pseudoaneurysm? That's a great question. I think that Dr. Starnes covered that a little bit, and I'm not going to speak too much on what he said, but... He found that the intimal tears at 30 days in that podcast, that they were not going to need to be re-imaged or repaired at all. And so he put each of those patients on 325 milligrams of aspirin for 30 days and said in that podcast that he didn't re-image them. So in that particular case, no, I, I would not repair an intimal tear. Um, but if it was a significant other type of aortic injury, I think I would lean towards repairing that. What are your thoughts, Dr. Rasmussen? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, the, the sort of the grade ones that uh, the, the um, Seattle group has described, um, I, I, I don't think that they, um, you know, parsed out the patients who might, for example, need uh, higher uh, cerebral perfusion pressure, and therefore they, they're not as amenable to, uh, you know, anti-impulse therapy or, or hypotensive resuscitation, whatever. I don't think they really parse that out, but I don't. I also don't. Uh, I also don't think that they, you know, they they, they they recommend or others around the country recommend, you know, um, fixing grade one injuries in in those patients. I think that they're if they're grade one, um, they you know those those generally don't need to be treated. And uh, now, I mean, I think there's always room, as in all of these complex uh, situations, for um, for, for another CT, you know, for, for a follow-up CT to see, I mean, if a, if a provider's really nervous about it and, uh, you know, the, the neurosurgeons have had to drive up the pressure for the TBI or, uh, to, to maintain, uh, uh, CPP, then, then, um, you know, you can always image them again to confirm that. But, uh, I, I agree. I think if, if they're a grade one injury, um, right now, they, they, you know, non, non-operative therapy is, is safe and, and, and indicated. Great. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the nitty gritty of actually repairing these. I think it's important for uh, residents out there to understand uh, the TVAR devices that are currently on the market. Um, these are generally uh, designed for aneurysmal disease and not for the trauma population. Uh, the trauma population is going to be uh, smaller. They're going to be, um, younger and healthier vessels and it's um you know these devices weren't really made so the devices that we currently have they are you know generally require large diameter uh access their compliance is not uh, as ideal for these kind of uh smaller aortic arches and um and the actual size of the devices are relatively large compared to these aortas 
Um, the average size of the aorta proximal to the injury in a study was shown to be about 19 millimeters, and our current smallest device is about 22 millimeters, which is a you know an adequate oversizing, but you wouldn't you know that's uh, only you know wouldn't want much bigger than that. So, uh, Dr. Kreisy, what what is your experience with uh, the current generation of devices? Yeah, I think the good news for a lot of these devices is that the technology seems to be advancing to where arch confirmation is starting to have a lot of technological advances so that the young patient with the steep aortic arch will better be treated in the coming decade. Um, Dr. Raspi, so this always brings up an interesting question in regards to the sizing of an endograft. So when a patient's injured and they're in the trauma bay and they get their CT angiogram, oftentimes they're under-resuscitated. How do you go about assessing what you think is the proper size of the aorta and choosing your endograft? So I think the um, it's a great question, and um, one of the things just to add to what you've what you've said, uh, Wayne, is that, um, and it really, I think, fits with our, um, the you know the line of our discussion about the evolution of, of of not of this injury pattern now our ability to have classifications that are pretty technical, uh, with degree of injury, um, and and then the evolution of of management techniques is now the evolution of these stent grafts. And, you know, um, one of the, I think, things to keep in mind is that TVAR for um, thoracic endovascular aneurysm repair, TVAR, stent graft uh, for blunt aortic injury, you know, a decade ago was done with really very clunky endograft technology. And, And none of that technology Let's say for the, for example, the AAST2 study that I cited, uh, the 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 endovascular repairs in that study were <laughs> often, uh, you know, iliac limbs uh, for the, for, you know, and not really designed for for blunt aortic injury. Now, fast forward to 2020, and we have, for example, uh, one of the devices that is made by Gore is actually has an indication uh, for uh, an aortic transection. You know, and so now, uh, you know, this, the technology uh, is really evolved now to, to suit the, you know, the condition, which is sort of exciting and I think gives us as vascular surgeons and, and gives patients a lot better options. Um, maybe we can go over some of the specific devices uh, next. Your point or your question about, um, you know, imaging is, I think, is, is, is an important one for listeners to understand. And I think... W- just to be clear, what we're talking about is, is that if a, if a patient's aorta is imaged in the CAT scanner when his or her you know, systolic blood pressure is 90 and they're relatively hypovolemic, then you know, is, is the, uh, how accurate is a, is a diameter of 18 millimeters, for example, and is that a vasoconstricted or just a hypovolemic uh, aorta? And I think it is. I think that it is, it is, it is not the greatest uh, measure and that providers should um, should keep that in mind that when patients are resuscitated, that the diameter of the aorta is actually going to be larger. So usually uh, what I would recommend is to, um, you know, still oversize uh, the, the stent graft by, you know, 20% or so based on your original measurement. Uh, again, and here, uh, unlike aneurysm disease, where, um, you know, you're trying to I think get a seal and a really diseased um, and dilated aorta. Here, uh, you know, the seal zone 
in, in, the, in the pathology is, is almost always much more focal. You're really just trying to cover and seal the proximal intimal tear. Um, and so I think that, you know, oversizing by roughly 20%, um, using intravascular ultrasound or IVUS, I think is also useful. Sometimes when you get then the patient to the OR for the TVAR, for the thoracic endovascular repair, using intravascular ultrasound real time to confirm or refute your original, um, you know, your original CT scan is, is, uh, is also useful. Um, but I think keeping in mind uh, the blood pressure and the volume status when the scan was taken, oversizing by somewhere around 20 to 25%, and then using IVUS, I think are useful tips. What do you think, or how do you guys do it in San Antonio? Oh, that's a great point. I mean, we, we set up IVUS for every single aortic case so that it can be there, it's mounted to the system. And even if we don't use it for the particular case, we know that everything's there and available for us to use it if we need to re-image or resize an aorta or some other blood vessel so that it can be adequately sized. Uh, I remember one time we had a 17-year-old with a blunt traumatic aortic injury and he needed an emergent repair. And we didn't have the smallest endograft at the hospital, but fortunately there was a one from a local hospital that could be sent over. But that was a little bit of a troubleshooting as what is what was I going to do as far as putting a larger endograft into a relatively small aorta, knowing exactly what we talked about, that open repair has much worse outcomes than an endovascular repair. And I think my the way I was going to approach that one was I was going to use the IVUS after I deployed the endograft to make sure I didn't have a retrograde dissection uh, or something, uh, some major complication related to the procedure. Yeah, I think... I think that also, uh, Wayne, speaks to the, um, um, the um, in, in some ways, and I, I don't want this to uh, be, not, I don't want to overstate this, but in some ways, this condition is, um, although the pa overall patient complexity can be uh, much greater, in some ways, just the aortic pathology is simpler than, than a complex dilated aortic aneurysm in, in an elderly patient. And, and I think that makes it more amenable to, um, uh, 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 to um, you know, sort of belts and suspenders repair, meaning that you just really need to seal the, the entry point. I mean, again, it's not, I'm not trying to oversimplify it because it is serious. And these certainly, uh, some of these at grade three or four by imaging can certainly rupture and, and cause mortality. But but even in the AAST2 trial in 2008 that was published in the Journal of Trauma, the success and the, and the unmistakable uh, advantage of endo repair over open, that was all using very primitive endo materials, you know, as I mentioned. So, you know, I think um, uh, it, it's really an exciting part of vascular uh, practice, vascular trauma is, is the evolution of, uh, of these technologies. But... Uh, I appreciate and I agree with and have definitely used the belts and suspenders sorts of endograph that you got. It's not exactly the one you want, um, but you use what you can and just try to seal the, the, the proximal portion of the intimal tear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of technical aspects to these and uh, kind of uh, you can miss um, the zone, you can deploy too proximal, too distal. One of the issues that comes up and you see sort of in uh, case reports of uh, 
you know, malpositioned uh, devices is what they call bird beaking and where the, um, the lesser curve, the graft isn't approximated well um, to the lesser curve of the aorta. And uh, Dr. Rasmussen, I wonder if you had any tips for our listeners um, on how to avoid uh, bird beaking. Yeah, great question. A couple of things. Um, <laughs> so I wish we could uh, illustrate this uh, for your listeners. Um, you did a nice job bird beaking to me. And, uh, you know, you guys jump in or correct me if you've got a different way to articulate it on just a call. Uh, we don't have a whiteboard. Um, bird beaking, as you said, is the is sort of the lifting of the inferior aspect of the very proximal uh, endograft where the fabric is. That, that, that ring, if you will, of stent, covered stent, lifts up off of the inner curve of the aortic arch. And if it lifts up, then it's prone to get an aorta, you know, a jet of flow and pressure that then you know, would cause an endoleak. And so to, to get that first covered stent ring to lay down uh, so that it doesn't lift up and, and cause this, I guess the bird beat comes because it sort of has this appearance of a, of a triangle uh, on, the, on the imaging. And I guess that's where bird beat comes from. Um, to get that to lay down, a couple of things. One, um, I think getting a stiff wire um, uh, around the outer edge of the arch. So using an Amplatz uh, or a Lunderquist wire that's really um, all the way into the aortic root, the ascending aorta, and actually pushing it um, so that it's got sort of a constant tension that um, allows you to get the endograft forward and you know, making sure that you have a stiff wire and platform is one, you know, that's, that's a basic principle of, of endograft deployment anyway, independent of the bird beat, but I think that helps. And then I think another is to consider if there's, if it's close or if it's an angulated arch to consider taking the endograft over across the origin of the left subclavian artery um, to where the, um, you know, to where the, there's more room, if you will, and a flatter inner arch uh, or inferior aspect of that curvature to lay the graft down. So covering the left subclavian, using a stiff uh, wire with forward pressure on that wire during positioning and deployment. And then a third thing, you know, some of the, 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 the gore uh, conformable uh, thoracic endograft now actually has a kind of a ratchet on it that, that allows one to have some control of that first stent so that you can actually kind of conform or lay it down. Um, I think that that's real. Um, I'm not quite sure how effective. I don't know what, you know, Wayne, what you think about the, the conformable uh, sort of the, 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 the gore graft, but I think that may be another advantage that comes is grafts that you can actually manipulate them when they're in place and, and try to lay down that first uh, covered stent component. Right. I, I think that's uh, ideal. I mean, we have recently switched all our inventory. So we let the old stuff, you know, use it and, or, or expire. And then the, everything that we purchase now for blunt thoracic uh, aortic injury is conformable. And I like to use the double curve Lunderquist. And just like you said, I, I have the assistant, uh, whoever's holding the wire, actually put forward pressure so that that wire is really snugged against the greater curvature of the aorta, aorta and also that the double curve Lunderquist is basically sitting at the uh, at the heart so that 
it can really give me as much tension as I can. And I think that bringing it across less of cleaving, if you think it's going to be bird beaked is, uh, is absolutely essential that if you need to cover it so that you don't have it sitting oddly on the inner curvature, that's, that's ideal. And I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. So, uh, another kind of issue, uh, that we can sometimes run into in our trauma patients is getting the devices there. Um, some of the iliac arteries are, uh, relatively small. Um, you know, granted the devices are getting smaller themselves, but Dr. Rasmussen, do you have a size, uh, that you would consider doing an iliac conduit, uh, for these graphs? Is there kind of a, a rule of thumb with our current generation? That's um, a great idea, a great question, a great idea sometimes to do an iliac conduit if you need it. I think, um, boy, I hate to, uh, to wimp out and just say it depends. Um, <laughs> so I would say that, you know, if, if, if the iliac, um, but, it does, but it does depend, um, you know, it depends on the age of the patient. I mean, if they're calcium free, um, you know, it's a young patient, like many or most of our trauma patients, um, and the iliac is, you know, uh, seven millimeters or greater, um, and it's sort of a straight shot. And, uh, you, know, uh, the, the, you know, seven to eight millimeters is sort of on the small side uh, of this. Um, but I will often, if it's calcium-free and in a young patient, then, you know, we'll give it a try. We'll, we'll, we'll try it through the, through, a, through the femoral without a conduit. Um, I think that if it's gets smaller than that, if it's a, you know, female and they're hypotensive when the images come through and you, 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 you know, you're ultrasounding them in the OR using duplex to size up their common femoral and you, you know, whether it's shock or just their native, they're just small. If it gets to be, you know, less than six or seven millimeters, then I think, uh, you know, uh, exposing either the common femoral or the external iliac through a retroperitoneal approach and, and putting on a Dacron conduit is, it's easy enough and, uh, and, uh, and should be done. Um, so I, I hate to say it depends, but you know, the flip side, I guess, uh, Kevin, is that if it's a, you know, if there's a lot of calcium and it's an elderly patient and it looks like there's atherosclerosis, then I have a lower threshold to put on a conduit because you know, you, you could cause problems. It's not as accommodating of, uh, of a, of a passage of the sheath if they're if they're calcified or highly angulated. Yeah, I think if it measures seven on the CT angiogram in the trauma bay, that it's likely, like you said, if it's not calcified and not diseased and not injured otherwise, it's it's a good chance that you're going to be able to deliver that endograft without any difficulty. Um, you may, I sometimes consider, I use, do them most percutaneously, but I'll cut down on the femoral artery, just yeah. like you said, just to make sure that it's delivered safely. And if there is a problem with removing it, that I'm ready and uh, ready to fix it. I think that's a great point. If it's a small one and, and you feel like you're kind of right on that edge, then uh, have a low threshold to just cut down. And, and, and that way you, you, you afford yourself, I think, a little bit um, more assured sort of placement, sure placement with an open which is also relatively easy or should be uh, to, to do it open. The other, the other thing, I don't know if you've used, I sometimes will oil the sheath with mineral oil. You know, I'll put it on the, on the, uh, I mean, you, you know, the other question here we haven't really talked about is heparin, to heparinize or not. We can get to that, but sometimes I'll get some uh, mineral oil on the back, you know, and I'll just cover the sheath if you think it's going to be tight and sort of uh, make that, uh, 
make the sheath as you're passing it from the femoral up the, the, the small external iliac into the, into the aorta, make it slick, if you will. Yeah, you uh, are, are reading our minds, sir. So I was actually uh, going to bring this question to Dr. Kazi. Uh, many of these patients are multi-injured, as we've discussed, and have uh, head injuries, maybe even head bleeds. Um, do you heparinize in all of these cases? Is there cases where you won't heparinize? Well, it's interesting in our group, we have a variation of practice patterns. Uh, I guess number one is if the neurosurgeon or someone completely contraindicates you to using heparin, then you're a little bit in a bind. Uh, I haven't really found that to be largely the case, but it does come up every now and then. I personally like to heparinize, even if it's just a little bit of heparin, um, 3,000 of heparin, just to uh, allow me to have the optimal device. But I don't think it's necessary. One of the things that you and I discussed recently because we repaired a, um, uh, a symptomatic AAA three days ago on a COVID-positive patient, Kevin, was we were concerned about the thrombosis with the large sheaths. Um, Dr. Raspin, what do you think with the, the COVID patients um, and heparin in general? Do you, do you heparinize all of your TVARs? And what, ha- what if you had a COVID-positive patient? That, great, great question. I mean, I think... Um... You know, I, I remember um, my first sort of T-VARs for blunt aortic injury when I was in San Antonio, and I was amazed at um, how, um, if the patient's condition allows it, uh, and I think most of them do, uh, operative planning, so imaging, uh, trying to get some resuscitation, maybe even, you know, a, a 12 to 24-hour delay in the repair if you get everything lined up and it's a straightforward uh, repair, um, how you you can really get these stent grafts in in sort of 30 minutes or less. Um, I, d- I don't want to exaggerate or, or tell a fish story here. So I, uh, you know, I know it's never as quick as we surgeons think it is. But the point is, if you can get it done quickly and the patient has other uh, contraindications, a head bleed, solid organ injury, you know, big hematoma and a fractured femur or something, then I think they can be done safely without heparinizing. Um, and I think um, one just needs to be mindful of the time um, and then really flushing out the femoral and then assessing the access side or site uh, when you're done. Um, uh, so I, I think they can be done safely without heparin. Um, now, the, the flip side is if the patient has no solid organ injury, TBI, hematoma in the thigh from a femur fracture, then, then proceeding with the use of heparin is, it would be preferred. You know, I think that's always preferred. Um, so I think, you know, I guess what I would say is I would prefer to use heparin. I do in all the cases that I can, uh, but I don't sweat it too much if I can't because of other conditions, uh, the patient has other injuries. I just am more attentive to the time my sheaths are in and then to what's happened, what's the status of the iliofemoral segment after I've removed the sheath. I think in COVID positive patients, I think they've shown themselves to be relatively hypercoagulable. And I would, uh, I would want to, you know, I'd I'd have a more, um, you know, uh, I think the imperative to anticoagulate, those patients would be higher because of their uh, shown propensity to develop uh, thrombus. Yeah, that's exactly what Kevin and I did with that endo AAA patient is we heparinized them more than we normally would and then yeah. followed ACTs pretty closely yeah. to make sure they stayed over 250. Really good point. And we didn't really mention it, but the ACT, the activated clotting time, I think 
you know, we talked about operative planning and, you know, for your listeners, I think, it's, you know, we tell our trainees the best, the best resident, the best surgeons are pessimists. You know, it sounds bad. I don't want to be a downer before the holidays, but you have to anticipate things going wrong and, and never be the optimist, right? Uh, if I have a, a major injury or condition, I want my doctor to be worried that everything's going to go wrong. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make the point. But part of that is the ACT machine. Like how many times have we been in the airport and we need an activated clotting time because we really, whether it's for a carotid or uh, endorectomy or this type of an injury. And, you know, the OR staff or anesthesia colleagues, not necessarily to a fault of theirs, they'll say, oh, we don't, the ACT machine's not working or we don't have it or something, right? So part of the pre-op planning for, for house officers is, you know, among all the other things is where's the ACT machine and can we draw a test ACT before the case starts? Because Dr. Kazi really needs the ACT on this one. And um, the last time you, you know, the, the worst time to hear, well, the ACT machine's not available, it doesn't work is when you've got a, you know, an 18 French sheath up a small iliac and an endograft in the aorta. So I agree with the ACT. And uh, <laughs> I don't want to sound too much like a pessimist. Maybe I'm just a realist that, <laughs> uh, you know, putting that on the pre-op timeout, for example, if you're going to do team steps or timeout, uh, make sure that you you're, you got that ACT lined up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's two kind of main uh, points we want to cover here uh, to wrap up uh, this topic. And, and one of them is the subclavian artery. And as we discussed before, the average distance between the injury and a subclavian is about 5.8 millimeters. And most of these devices recommend a two centimeter coverage and healthy vessel, um, and then two centimeters distal in order to um, obtain adequate coverage. And so in, in using those numbers, the registry suggests about 40% of patients uh, have their subclavians covered in these cases. So, Dr. Rasmussen, what are your thoughts on sub covering the subclavian artery? Do you um, do anything to revascularize it af if you do uh, cover it? And any, any thoughts you have on this? Yeah, great question. The, um, this also has evolved uh, and I think can be institution specific. Uh, although I think most institutions now have gone to not uh, um, um, preemptively revascularizing the subclavian. So maybe for if we take a step back. Uh, I don't want to take too much time, but I think for your listeners, what we're talking about here is, is, is covering with that covered stent. So you got to get that covered stent graft up over in, into the distal part of the aortic arch to seal, to get a good two centimeter length of seal before that aortic tear that happened most commonly at the aortic isthmus, right? You, and so sometimes that requires covering the left subclavian artery. And while that seems crazy, most patients do just fine with that actually. They may have a little bit of arm claudication, but do just fine. And what that allows us to do is to then get that two centimeters of seal uh, where the stent graft is really you know, well, well opposed to the inner curve of the aortic arch, if you will, uh, or, or the outer uh, curve. Um, the, the things that I think about, I think, uh, where's the vertebral artery? So the, so the risks of covering the left subclavian, I mentioned arm, uh, arm claudication um, or ischemia. So paying real close attention to, uh, and then another complication could be stroke, right? So that um, if, if, if the patient has a, a the, the dominant vertebral artery is on the left, and it comes off the left subclavian, and for some reason they don't have a right vertebral, 
then you really need to revascular. You got you can't cover the left subclavian without revascularizing, uh, you know, uh, that subclavian in the vert. Um, so paying attention to where the, what the the dominant vert is, where it's from, what does the right vertebral artery look like? Is there atherosclerotic disease in the arch and the great vessels to include the verts? And then the third main complication is spinal cord ischemia. Um, and weirdly, uh, you know, for your listeners, you'd think, well, how can covering the left subclavian lead to spinal cord ischemia? Um, and if you think back to how our spinal cord is perfused, um, it is rare and very, it's uncommon, but, but there are collateral pathways through the, through the IMA, the internal mammaries, and to, through other uh, collateral circulations that originate off the subclavian, whereas subclavian perfusion can be important to perfuse the spine. So, you know, making sure that you have those three things in mind, left arm claudication, posterior circulation stroke, spinal cord ischemia. And as long as you have those front and center, um, you know, most of the time you can still cover that left subclavian without revascularizing it. And you will be cognizant of the situations where you do need to revascularize it, either before you do the T-VAR, you know, or at the same time, um, or sometimes afterwards. Yeah, this is always an interesting situation, particularly some more rare scenarios that often comes up as well is, uh, as you said, the right vertebral already may be occluded. There's a dialysis access in the left arm. Or the one that concerns me the most is if there's a, a lima to an LAD. Uh, I don't. I agree. I don't think there's an easy answer on these. Uh, we have uh, laser fenestrated a few endografts for these rare cases with pretty good result. Um, and I do think that there's some graphs on the horizon that's going to allow us to preserve that left subclavian artery um, yeah. in the future. Good, good point. Yeah, really good point about the lima. So for the listeners, that means that the patient's had a cabbage and they've got their left IMA going into the, for example, the left anterior dis, uh, or to the, into a coronary. So you can't, you know, you can't cover that without, you might cause a MI. Yeah. And I think good point on the future of the graphs. I think we'll have, we do have already branch graphs that uh, may not yet be approved for trauma, but they're probably coming, which will help. And did we talk about, or maybe I'll ask a question. I don't know if that's fair. Uh, uh, Kevin Please. And, and Wayne, but uh, did we talk about uh, spinal cord drainage? I mentioned, you know, spinal cord ischemia and a rare incidence of paraplegia. You know, do you guys uh, in San Antonio preemptively uh, do sort of uh, spinal cord drainage uh, for blunt aortic injuries that you're going to put an endograft in or not? Uh, no. Um, in general, it, it's thought that uh, likely due to the, the short distance of coverage, uh, with these graphs that there's not a lot of uh, intercostals that are kind of covered and in, in putting the spinal cord at risk. I think the, the risk of spinal cord ischemia is extremely low in these cases, but it's something you certainly have to have in mind and have your anesthesia team or neurosurgery colleagues um, aware of and available for uh, should the situation change. And so certainly a motor and neuro exam at the conclusion of the case is critical. And I think we would respond uh, with uh, elevating the blood pressures and, um, you know, potentially placing a spinal drain if there was concern for uh, spinal cord ischemia uh, following the case. But uh, routinely, uh, we do not. And, um, and, and that's sort of our kind of algorithm for that. How about you, Dr. Rasmussen? 
Yeah, I agree. I, I couldn't. I don't have a whole lot more to add. We do it selectively, very you know, uncommonly, and that's also because of the risks associated with uh, placing a spinal cord drain. You know, those aren't minimal. Both placing the drain and then monitoring it effectively. Um, I think we've uh, gotten away from that. I think it is important for your listeners to understand also that, and I think you referred to this, that the risk of spinal cord ischemia when you cover, you know, a segment of the, of the, of the descending thoracic aorta, the risk is low because we're not paving the entire or such a long segment, but the risk is, uh, you know, it, it, it's out there for what, 24 hours, 48 hours. So there's a rare, you know, again, thinking about being a pessimist, uh, I guess I, I should get away from that term. It sounds bad around the holidays. I'm not trying to be, <laughs> but, uh, but you, you know, the residents, house officers, you have to realize that the, the patients who, for example, come out of the OR with a normal neuro exam, there is an incidence, it's low, two, 3% of patients who can develop spinal cord ischemia like 24, 48 hours, uh, even 72 hours later. So we really have to you know, be mindful of, of the spinal cord ischemia complication, even though it's uncommon. Yeah, I think the postoperative care can't be understated. The fact that you avoid hypotension, you make sure that the patient's properly resuscitated. And if there is any concern for a neurologic uh, event that's occurring, that you have a system in place to where a lumbar drain can be placed relatively uh, expeditiously. A couple things that come to mind when I think about uh, spinal drains, uh, particularly for elective cases, are someone who's had a prior aortic repair, uh, chronic kidney disease to a significant degree, stage four or five, or even in-stage renal disease, and um, and whether I'm going to need to cover a large segment. And for, luckily for most aortic injuries, you're talking 10 centimeters for a covered endograft. And so again, that's going to be the the shortest device that's available. And so it's going to give you the lowest risk as far as an aortic coverage standpoint occurs. Yeah, those are great points and things to keep in mind when uh, fixing these patients. Uh, so as we wrap up uh, blunt thoracic aortic injury, we're going to uh, cover one of the more important points. There's a lot of important points here, uh, but this one uh, is the timing of the repair. Um, you know, generally it was thought initially that, you know, you should repair these sooner rather than later. Um, but Dr. Rasmussen, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the timing? And, and specifically, I think we're referring to the kind of the the SVS grade three, the pseudo aneurysms. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the timing of repair of these? Um, so another, you know, great topic, great question in this, uh, uh, pertaining to this injury pattern. I think that, um, you know, I think that I'll, I'll start with the premise that delayed repair is, is certainly feasible, um, in many cases and in many cases it's preferable. And, and so um, that's sort of the premise uh, of, of, of the, the answer. Uh, delayed repair, meaning 24 to 48 hours later, is feasible and preferable in, in many cases. Um, I, I want to be careful because there's certainly some cases uh, where it's, you know, a, a grade four or a grade three that's, that's evolving into a four uh, where the patient, you know, d delayed repair is not feasible, you know. But, um, but I think that delaying what we've understood, I think, with our experience broadly on this uh, in the U.S. is that once you get a patient under your care and into your ICU, 
if they have a grade three repair and they've survived that far and you now can get them on anti-impulse therapy uh, and, and appropriate resuscitation, that, um, that, that waiting 24 hours, again, is safe and, and preferable uh, in, in, I think, the majority of cases. Um, and, and why is that? Well, I think it's because it allows us to do good operative planning. We've, we've mentioned sort of the team steps, if you will, the, the things that we want to troubleshoot and anticipate for the repair, uh, whether it's size of vessel, access, assembling the right endographs, the right team, to include spinal cord drainage or what, you know, the whole thing. I think we do a better job if we're given ourselves 24 to 36 hours, for example. And, and I think it also allows patients other injuries to be stabilized. So whether that's a serious TBI, uh, you know, long bone fracture, solid organ injury, uh, uh, I think it, it helps us. So, um, so I think delaying is, 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 is feasible. We've just published, I, we mentioned, won't mention a whole lot of papers here, but uh, there is a paper in the Journal of Vascular Surgery uh, that is a large assessment and just came out in the Journal of Vascular Surgery. Ramon uh, Sistero is the senior author. Dr. Sistero, uh, most of you know, is at U University of Texas Health Science Center. And it's a great paper for a lot of reasons. It's, it's the timing of repair for blunt aortic injuries. So it's, this paper addresses exactly your question. Um, it's a great paper because it's got trauma and vascular surgeons on it. Uh, Brian Eastridge, Don Jenkins are on it, uh, but it's got some really uh, awesome uh, vascular surgery fellows from the Cleveland Clinic who did this when they were at Cleveland. Uh, and what that analysis of the National Trauma Data Bank shows is, is just that, is that there's actually a survival benefit associated with delayed repair. Um, and I won't go into the paper. Your readers can look at JBS and and Ramon, Dr. Sistero, uh, uh, is you can sort of PubMed him, or we can send that paper out on your on your uh, to your listeners. But but it does show that there's a survival benefit for those who have a greater than 24 hour uh, delay in their TVAR. And that's there's an analysis that we did in that paper that that controls for severity of injury. You know, meaning that it's not just because those with less severe injuries um, survive longer. Uh, there's undoubtedly some survivorship bias in that. Uh, definitely acknowledge that, but it, but that paper speaks to it's a large NTDB analysis of this injury, and it speaks to the I think the value of of, of trying to delay repair if possible. Yeah, I think it's a really important uh, topic um, to have published data on because I think many surgeons and ER docs and, and, and when they hear of a aortic transection or pseudoaneurysm feel um, and they may pressure uh, vascular surgeons to you know get in there and fix it and I think uh, knowing this information is uh, critical and supportive of our community here. Yeah and the, and the delay also allows you to really get an idea of what's the constellation of the injury patterns that are occurring. I mean if if there's some infectious process that's concomitantly going on with the injured patient's yeah. care that can an infected endograft in the thoracic aorta can be a nearly if not insurmountable problem to try to tackle and uh, repair um, we i can remember one case where we, the endograft was infected and before we could even wrap our hands around it the aorta had ruptured and the patient ended up succumbing to their injuries but 
uh, the, the delaying it by a little bit of time affords you the opportunity to really gather as much information as you can to make the best decision on when and how to repair the aorta. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the delays I mentioned 24 hours, but I think Wayne, as you're pointing out, it can also be seven days, right? It can be, you know, as long as, now the thing is that, you know, you you can't ignore the patient. You got to still stick with anti-impulse therapy. Um, it's, uh, and, and, you know, very meticulous care because you can, you know, there are cases certainly where a delay, you know, can fail, you know, and those are cases where we lose track of their blood pressure and, and uh, you know, something happens in the OR for a femur fracture or something and, and we lose track and uh, we're not communicating as a multidisciplinary team and you can turn a stable, uh, you know, grade three injury that you're observing for four or three or four or five days into one that ruptures. That's very rare, but again, uh, we want to be mindful of, of uh, just because we're delaying doesn't mean you get a free pass until the OR in, uh, five days later. Right. I think if I, me personally, if I'm going to be watching a grade three aortic injury um, up to seven days, that patient's going to stay in the ICU with very close monitoring that entire time until the time of yeah. the repair. These yeah. are fantastic points. And I think we really covered blunt thoracic aortic injury uh, quite in depth. And I think our listeners will really enjoy this. We have uh, two more topics uh, that are much briefer to cover here as we close out the endovascular management of trauma. Um, so we're going to move down the aorta a little bit. We're going to do below the diaphragm, and this is pretty rare, but there are it's, it's important to keep this in mind. Um, the blunt abdominal aortic injuries and the endovascular approach to this. Um, so many times it's a similar sort of patient population as the uh, thoracic aortic injuries, uh, where it's a multiple injured trauma patient. And when we describe the blunt abdominal aortic injury, they, in, in, in repairing it for endovascular, there's three zones that are thought of. Um, and the numbers ones and three are the ones that you can repair um, endovascular. So zone one is from the diaphragm down to the SMA. Um, zone two is the SMA and renal arteries, a relatively small segment, but uh, that's zone two. And then zone three is from the inferior, renal, inferior to the renal arteries to the aortic bifurcation. Um, so zone one and zone three, you know, above... Uh, from above the SMA to, and then also below the renal arteries are the two areas that are amenable to endovascular repair. Yeah, fortunately, Kevin, these things are extraordinarily uncommon. I mean, you, most vascular surgeons at level one trauma centers, I would wager, can count on one or two hands, depending on how old they are, the number of these injuries they've had to manage from an endovascular standpoint. I think, Dr. Rasmussen, what, what do you think about coverage of the celiac artery? Um, and what are the factors you think about if you had to repair something in that area? Yeah, I think that um, I think there's increasing um, literature, including, I think, uh, an article in, I'm just I'll pull the journal here, but I think it's, yeah, it's this November uh, JBS about the feasibility and safety of covering the celiac artery. It's, it's What's in this month's JBS is not uh, pertaining to trauma, but it's talking about uh, covering the celiac for uh, for TVAR and EVAR, for example, for aneurysm disease. I think we're learning that you can cover the celiac safely in many cases. I think it it reminds me of what the left subclavian was 10 years ago. You know, where we didn't know, we were a little nervous. We knew there were some patients you couldn't cover it in. And now 10 years later, we pretty routinely cover that left subclavian. Uh, and I think the celiac artery is, is similar. It reminds me of that. I think in patients, obviously, you've got to look at the 
make sure they've got patent SMA, uh, probably an IMA, and then internal iliac arteries, you know, looking at the blood supply to the whole of their mesentery. And if any of that's compromised, then that would give me, um, you know, pause, certainly if they've had a, you know, a gastrectomy or some unusual intra-abdominal uh, operation that's interrupted their uh, bowel, if you will, their gut circulation, that would give me pause to cover the celiac. Um, you know, but otherwise, I think if it really gets you out of a jam, uh, which these injuries are, like, so, yeah, you're right, Wayne, they're pretty rare, but man, they're, they're really hard to try to repair open. So if it gets a person out of a jam and you need to cover the celiac, I think you can. Yeah, I think those are uh, fantastic points. And, you know, just like with the uh, thoracic injuries, another, you know, situation where you have to be prepared uh, to respond um, with a bypass, potentially, if, if um, you, you know, you have ischemia that you didn't expect. Um, and so it's just things to keep in mind. One thing I think the we like to talk about here is the IVIS is also very helpful. It's kind of like uh, with dissection cases, a lot of these cases are sort of um, kind of variants of dissections, uh, but they're traumatic. And so the IVIS can really help characterize this. You can help identify these large intimal flaps um, and pseudoaneurysms or uh, kind of in, and see the branches and help uh, plan your stent graft placement all with IVIS. So one thing to keep in mind when, especially if these patients might not tolerate a lot of contrast. Another kind of situation to keep in mind, this is in a patient with in significant intestinal intestinal contamination and uh, the endovascular approach to this would help uh, eliminate any or, or you know minimize any risk of contamination uh, so dr kazi as far as the types of graphs um, that you're thinking of when you have a patient uh, what are you using are you using t-vars covered stents, aortic cuffs what, what's your preferred method my preferred method is to use whatever means is going to cover the least amount of aorta but still seal the injury um, so the answer to that is yes, I'd, I'd use all of them. Um, some of the newer covered balloon expandable and post-dilatable stents have changed our management, particularly in the smaller aortas. At our level one trauma center, we carry basically the entire catalog of balloon expandable covered stents. Uh, one that Kevin recently showed me um, was we did an iliac branch case last week, and the uh, covered stent I didn't realize started up it started eight millimeters and goes all the way up to 11 I'm sorry 16 millimeters previously it was a 11 millimeter stent that could be post dilated up to 16 so in the smaller aortas uh, I think these uh, have a role um, in being able to post dilate them the, the question is how to keep it in place when you're post dilating it so that it doesn't move and so if that's a concern then oftentimes I will go to a uh, a thoracic graft or an aortic cuff or uh, something that I know is going to deploy and stay stable the entire time. Great. And I, I think uh, now we're going to move into our final topic of the day is axillo subclavian injuries and endovascular management. We, we chose these three topics as uh, we, endovascular care has really kind of in some ways revolutionized uh, the management of these. And so um, as we know, the injuries to the axillo subclavian is, is very rare and it's uh, likely due to the protective nature of the skeleton. But the fact of the skeleton there also makes it very difficult to obtain proximal and distal control. So, uh, Dr. Kazi, if you have a patient with uh, some kind of contained subclavian injury um, and you're going to approach this from an endovascular approach, uh, wh what approach do you prefer to, to access this? 
my preferred approach is from the arm if at all possible. Um, that could either be brachial or radial, um, depending on the, again, if you have a covered stent that can be post dilated to uh, a size that can be delivered through a seven front sheath, then you can use a, a, a radial access for those patients. And that uh, can be done percutaneously with low risk. Otherwise, I, I do like to cut down on the brachial artery if I'm um, going to the brachial artery for trauma. It just seems to be more reliable for me and uh, sometimes even quicker. But uh, I, I like the uh, brachial approach, but sometimes I'll do both the brachial and the femoral approach uh, and combine that with a through wire if I have a really tough or challenging aortic arch and I need to deliver something, say, to the proximal right subclavian um, and you've got a, a, a type 3 arch or something to that effect, then I like the through wire. Great. And so as far as, you know, we like discussing our stent options here and I, I've heard uh, debates even on Twitter about this about whether to use a self-expanding stent because it might give you more flexibility especially if it's in the axillary artery um, versus balloon expandable uh, more precise deployment especially if near kind of branch vessels um, Dr. Rasmussen do you have a do you have a preferred stent or do you just base it on the situation I think that we um, had uh, you, you know, I think initially we erred, um, and, well, I don't know we erred on the side of self-expanding. Initially, if you think back, um, you know, when we first started treating this injury pattern with endo techniques, covered stents, all of the covered stents available were self-expanding. We didn't really have, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have viable um, balloon expandable covered stents. And so I think, you know, therefore... Uh, that's what we got used to, whether it was the Viabon or the old fluency or, or, or whatever, the self-expanding. And so we got used to that. And uh, I think more recently in the last three to four, five years, uh, there's now um, really nice uh, balloon expandable covered stents, which uh, are flexible, I think. And, and I, think, I think it's dealer's choice in a lot of ways. I do think there is truth to um, balloon expandable for more precise landing. You know, I just think that's that premise of uh, stenting is holds true, meaning that if you got to really nail something, uh, you know, close to a lima, uh, an interior, in, uh, inferior mammary, um, or I'm sorry, an internal mammary, um, or you read in relation to the vertebral, um, you know, balloon expandable is, I think, more accurate if it's uh, you know, if it's uh, more distally and you need a little longer stent in the axilla, then using a self-expanding is just fine. Another thing that, you know, I think you may get to, and um, I, I lost you there for just a second, so I don't know if Wayne mentioned it, but sometimes you need to come from both, right? The arm retrograde, um, but if you can't cross it retrograde, you know, sometimes coming antegrade um, for imaging and sometimes to to, to really make that connection between the disruption uh, coming, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's retrograde, but coming from the groin into the origin of the subclavian and axillary uh, antegrade is, is needed as well. Yeah, I'd mentioned one of my techniques for that was to have a through wire. So I'd snare wire in the descending thoracic aorta and then um, come, especially for a challenging arch, then I would come across with a sheath from the femoral artery and then deploy my yeah. stent with a through wire. Um, and that I felt feels gives me a pretty precise deployment, uh, particularly if I'm really trying to nail something and I want to make sure that there's no curves or bends and that the stent delivery, which is usually a little stiffer than the sheath, 
is going to be able to make it around and be very precise, particularly if you're trying, like you said, nailing a ver vertebral artery or um, an IMA. Yeah, we had one where we, our last one we did here, uh, a couple of my partners are pretty crafty and skilled and, and we, we actually had to put a, uh, we had to, I think uh, we used a uh, snare, right? So we could not get from the arm, we couldn't get the, the, uh, the wire to make the approach. So we put a, came up, you know, antegrade through the left subclave and got a snare sort of out there and were able to snare the free wire and bring it through. That's pretty rare, pretty uncommon. Um, but, you know, and uh, I think those are all techniques that we're learning uh, for the kind of the fringes of these injury patterns, which used to be too severe for us to treat with endo. And now we're actually finding with technology and experience that actually you can, you can treat the vast majority of these. Yeah, these are uh, a lot, a lot of options, and things are going to continue to evolve as our technology improves. It's kind of a theme of this episode. Uh, I, I seem to find that when people have these injuries, there for some reason, maybe this is just my own experience. It seems to be that they're more contraindicated for anticoagulation. I don't know if it's because the uh, nature of the injury to injure something in the you know in the bony thorax, such as scapulothoracic dissociation, or a subclavian artery pseudoaneurysm. I remember, I can remember there's cases where the central line goes in for a head injured patient because they need to monitor their CVPs. Um, I prefer to have a brachial open approach to that when I can't give anticoagulation just because I can then I'm set up to do an embolectomy if need be for the brachial artery. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a great point. And just to kind of uh, wrap this up, and as far as discussing, you know, options you have from the endovascular approach, the really it's it's up to your kind of imagination. There's a, you know, uh, whether it's a proximal right subclavian injury, a proximal left subclavian injury, um, you know, that you can use a hybrid approach. I, I, I've seen uh, multiple examples of uh, large hematomas where the proximal and distal control are obtained, uh, whether it's over a through wire or from the arm. Um, and, and then you can approach it open. Um, it really helps in that situation. Um, I know, uh, recently we had a case where we did some parallel stenting of the brachiocephalic in order to, to treat an injury. Um, and, and you can even use, uh, the endovascular approach to embolize. You can embolize the subclavian arteries, um, and, and you know, and do things, uh, with, as long as you're respecting the vertebral artery. So uh, to keep in mind, you know, there's not one kind of recipe for treating these axilla subclavian injuries um, and really kind of adjusting it to the patient. So, and even in, and there's, you know, kind of the last thing I'll mention is uh, sometimes these patients, you know, would probably do better with a bypass, especially with some axillary artery injuries. You know, it's going to be in a pretty mobile spot, uh, but they're too sick. And so I, I've seen it even done where they use a stent graft to temporize things to keep inline flow. And then at a more stable time, maybe a week, a month later, take them back and, and perform the bypass. Before you end, I don't want to get you, uh, let you off the hook. I think the question for you guys and your listeners and, and, and this may be the most important question of our discussion, is to what degree does the, do, should we in the military try to take these endotechnologies into our deployed hospitals? Uh, we've just discussed a range of injuries in which patients do better, right? So they bleed less, they're often less, uh, less frequently paralyzed from T-bar, for example. Uh, they survive more. They, uh, with these endo technologies. 
So are we telling ourselves that that's okay for civilians off the street in the U.S., uh, but not good enough, uh, but, but, our, but our service members have to just kind of get by in the deployed range, you know, when they're downrange with these injuries? Or do we, are, is, it, is it our responsibility to develop systems of casualty care in which we can take these technologies downrange? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, um, obviously the farther out you get, so like when I was in a forward surgical team in Afghanistan, we, it took us three months to get um, the most primitive x-ray machine you could think of and just to get a chest x-ray to see if there was a pneumothorax. But when you get back to the role three um, level, which for everyone, for the listeners, that's a combat support hospital. So there was, for instance, there would be one in Baghdad. So there's one that triages to the, the next level of care from all the forward surgical teams to a combat support hospital. And there's, there's two in Afghanistan, for instance. But um, they don't aren't always equipped with endovascular technologies, as Dr. Rasmussen's really alluding to. And, and, and as a matter of fact, they're, they're are going to be no thoracic endografts to repair. There's um, the capabilities is digital subtraction angiography, um, usually at best to say, you know, treat a bypass. But I do think that one of the things we brought up in this podcast, and Dr. Rasmussen, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts, is that we have demonstrated that there is uh, a delayed timing of repair for aortic injuries. And I do think that deployment and placing in a thoracic endograft or a covered stent in, say, Germany, Walter Reed, or San Antonio is much better than trying to do the same thing in Baghdad or Bagram or Kandahar, Afghanistan, because um, there are the aseptic techniques are not going to be the same there as they are here, and the bacteria and the microorganisms that exist in those environments are also significantly different than what we experience in the United States? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, I kind of, I get a little bit fired up about it. Um, I know you've got a lot of young, you know, you've, you've guys got the future uh, who are your listeners, you know, and I think there, there's a ton of um, brain power, you know, intellectual capacity that listens to this uh, and it's to your guys's credit. I think it's, it's going to be up to, to the next generation, right, to figure out how do we integrate uh, endo technologies for wartime scenarios. And, um, you know, and I think to it's, it's, it's like it's too big of a topic to answer that with one question. But I think if you take it in, 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 in sort of intervals and you say, well, in the near term, right, so from now to 2022, 2023, maybe all we can do is get uh, what like what you said, Wayne, uh, let's make sure we have vascular go teams on the West Coast and the East Coast uh, who can go into the Pacific or the European theater, African theater uh, with endo stuff, right? So that if if we can't get a casualty back, we can, um, you know, so figure out what we can do in the near, near or near term. But, you know, in the, in, the, in the midterm, whose fault is it that there's no digital subtraction angio at rule three? Is that are we just going to blame it on the system and say it's a damn shame or is that our fault? Right. Cause we're not articulating this. And I think, you know, we, we should think about that. I think that, yes. Uh, so, you know, most of the time a covered stent for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Wayne. I mean, you'd definitely rather have a T-bar in you know, Germany or uh, Walter Reed or Bamsey 
than than in Balad or Bagram, Afghanistan, for example. But some patients can't wait, right? And so, you know, how do we establish an endospecific trauma inventory and get it into the cache, right? So that for the select cases who can't wait, what if it's a type three or type four uh, blunt aortic injury? Do we then commit that service member to, you know, an antiquated treatment? Maybe. Uh, what if it's uh, one of because and it's particularly relevant in this discussion because you've mentioned injury patterns that can be highly lethal but are particularly amenable to endotherapies, you know, and there's no answer to it. And I don't mean to uh, get too fired up, but I'm excited to sort of pose that question to the young and innovative, you know, listeners that, that you guys have to help us think about what is a trauma specific endo inventory? How can it be brought to, you know, resource limited circumstances or scenarios to, to provide the benefit that these technologies have to, to some of these patients? It's a great discussion, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with uh, uh, with you guys, uh, and, and uh, it's been fun. Absolutely. And Dr. Rasmussen, I have to thank you for this entire series, for joining us and taking time out of your very busy schedule to get down and dirty and talk very specific and very technical. Um, I think this will be a resource for years to come for both the listeners of Behind the Knife and Audible Bleeding, so thank you. Thank you again, and, and thank you, Dr. Kazi, for joining us and uh, helping us with this discussion. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Stay safe and stay well. <laughs>